Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Dan Anthony, Vice President of the Trade Partnership and Executive Director of the Coalition for GSP. So the topic today is the Generalized System of Preferences, or GSP, one of the oldest or the oldest of uh, U.S. trade preference programs. Um, The basic rationale behind it, as you know, is to provide eligible developing countries with preferential access to the U.S. market um, in order to help spur economic growth in poorer countries. This program has been around in the U.S. since the 1970s. Give us a little more context first about the impetus for creating this program um, and, you know, how it all got started. Sure. So the real theory behind GSP, and, and this isn't just a U.S. program, um, there's a number of them uh, like this around the world came out of the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development, um, or UNCTAD, uh, and it was trying to come up with new ways in the sort of the early 1970s to promote uh, trade, not aid. Um, and when you think about it at a very basic level, if you send money or you send food supplies or something like that to uh, developing countries, and particularly those without great rule of law in place, you've got more questions about corruption or how that um, how those resources are being used. And so instead of giving something tangible where you don't know where it's going, by opening up your own market, you encourage those industries in those countries to develop, uh, and you're really giving that preference um, to your domestic companies to buy from those developing countries that are that are eligible as opposed to, say, other rich countries. Okay, so eligibility is it seems to be an important word here in discussing this program. So as best as I can tell, there are about 120 developing countries and territories that are currently GSP beneficiary countries. So what do countries have to do in order to be eligible? What makes them eligible in the case of the U.S. GSP program? So there's there's a couple different. There's very objective criteria, and then there are some subjective criteria. Uh, on the objective side, um, very cut and dry. If a country is deemed to be high income by the World Bank, it graduates out of the program. Uh, and so that's a number that's sort of published every year, and all of the countries of the world are sort of into these groupings of high income, middle income, low income. Uh, And if a country that is eligible for the program reaches that high income status, uh, they lose GSP usually a a year or two later, um, depending on when the announcement is made. And so uh, there are other, you know, very objective criteria. There's a list of countries that cannot get it. So EU members cannot be eligible for the GSP program, the US GSP program. Uh, And so, for example, when Bulgaria and Romania joined the EU in 2007, they automatically lost their GSP. So you have this list of of criteria that are are really black and white. Um, Then you have subjective criteria uh, associated with really with actions that we would like to see countries taking. And so um, protecting intellectual property rights, uh, protecting internationally recognized worker rights, providing reasonable market access to U.S. exports, and things like that. And, and they tend to be high level criteria, um, as opposed to very sort of prescriptive, you need to provide these types of tariffs to US exports. It's, it's very subjective. And, and that's where you have some of these country specific reviews that, that raise questions about whether a country should maintain its GSP eligibility. Okay, to follow up on this point about reviewing countries and their status and their eligibility status, 
Um, how does that take place? Is that an annual process? Are there opportunities for other stakeholders to weigh in? Can you talk just a little bit more about how that review happens? Sure. And so, again, if, if a country meets one of those um, black and white criteria, there is no review associated with it. Uh, it's just an announcement that's made as part of a proclamation. Um, on the uh, subjective eligibility criteria, um, the U.S. government can self-initiate reviews. Uh, stakeholders can file petitions saying we don't believe that country X is, is meeting this criteria. Uh, and then the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative would, would lead a government review um, that brings in stakeholders from you know, State Department, Commerce Department, USDA, uh, depending on what the issue is. You know, obviously, Department of Labor would be involved if it's questions about workers' rights. Um, they would play a larger role. Uh, and so you've got this interagency process that, that seeks to identify uh, issues and then um, determine whether countries are, are you know, meeting the eligibility requirements. Generally, it's not uh, a process that's intended to remove benefits, but trying to find solutions and working with then the foreign governments on, on what steps could be taken to bring that country into compliance. Okay. And how would you assess the success of the GSP program in the 40 plus years or so that the U.S. has had its program in place? Have there been a number of countries that have graduated out of it because they have achieved higher levels of economic development? Aside from the um, EU accession example that you mentioned earlier with Romania and Bulgaria, but rather um, on that list of subjective criteria, have you seen countries actually get stronger on those criteria and quote unquote, graduate, you know, out of the program. Uh, how would you how would you discuss its evolution and the success of this program? So it's this is a trickier question. And it's um, it's a trickier question for me because uh, my members and the companies that I work with are all the U.S. companies that import them to the program. So for them, graduation isn't a success. It means that they lose the benefits that they're used to. Um, they're used to receiving. Uh, but, you know, I think you know, generally speaking, there, there haven't been a ton of countries who have hit that uh, threshold. And in part, it's because the World Bank's income metric is a sliding scale. So countries can be, you know, have an improving standard of living, their GDP per capita might be going up. Um, but if they're not closing the gap and moving from sort of one grouping of countries into the next, and it's all relative, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be graduated, even if they're not as poor as they were three or five or 10 years ago. Um, so there's, there's that relative nature, which means that not a lot of countries sort of cross that threshold from one grouping into the next. Um, but again, if I don't think that's necessarily a, a way of saying it's unsuccessful, if, if you're seeing improvements in those countries, um, you know, the, the bigger challenge is that even on the, the income thresholds, um, some of the decisions tend to be uh, seemingly more political than economic. Uh, and so countries can be graduated uh, for, um, for being sufficiently economic developed, even if they don't hit those income thresholds. Uh, you know, the last company, country that this happened to was Turkey in 2019. Um, and again, it followed a review for a wholly different reason that really didn't seem to be progress. And then they were removed from the program for the economic development uh, while they were in recession. Um, 
2014, Russia was removed from being sufficiently developed, but it really was associated with the annexation of Crimea. Um, again, that's not to say that um, Russia's actions were right, but the, the economic development criteria can be used for non-economic reasons um, because it's just a reason uh, that can be justified to remove programs. Um, so there's there's a lot of nuance here, and I, I think it creates some challenges on saying, was it successful? Um, we have more information on individual products that have lost GSP. And so just like countries can be graduated if they hit certain income thresholds, um, there are what are called competitive need limitation thresholds. So if uh, imports from, say, Brazil, if they reach a certain uh, volume for, for a given product or, or they account for more than half of U.S. imports, they're deemed to be competitive. Uh, and so that's another process of removing individual products. Um, the thinking being that you know, if they've hit those levels, they really don't need the GSP benefits. Um, but when we look at the products that have lost GSP over time, um, about 90% of them in 2019 were below those statutory thresholds. So what we can sort of see there is once products are removed, imports drop, people start buying from other countries, and they really weren't that competitive in the first place. Um, and, and so over time, those have accumulated, and, and now you've got uh, probably about $100 million in tariffs that are being paid a year on products that wouldn't lose GSP today, but they lost it at some point over the last 20 or 30 years, and um, imports have declined as a result. Interesting. Okay, so there's a lot to draw out there in, in everything that you just said. And so one point I want to pick up on is this idea that success can look differently depending on who's doing the looking right. So for an importing U.S. company, who you know is importing products from a GSP eligible country and paying low or no tariffs for that country to graduate or for that product to lose that status? That's not a success in the eyes of those running that company. Um, on the other hand, um, you have the developing countries themselves who would like to continue to have this market access and sell their product. So that's an interesting way, I think, of looking at this program. And I want to get into a little bit more of this, uh, how this looks on the U.S. side, how it impacts U.S. companies. Um, the latest statistics that I have found from 2018 show that about $23 billion worth of product entered the U.S. duty-free under GSP um, out of $238 billion worth of imports from all GSP-eligible countries that year. So that's about 10% of everything GSP-eligible countries are exporting to the U.S. is coming in under GSP. So, um, But I want to talk about what this means for U.S. manufacturers. Looking at the product list that I could find from 2018, it looked like Quite a lot of the products coming in under GSP are what could be considered intermediate imports, so um, items that companies need to build what they build. Um, and looking at Nebraska, you know, where I'm sitting, um, the statistics that I could see were that um, the average tariff on an, import of, an, an imported item would have faced without GSP coming into Nebraska under that program in 2018 was about 3.5%. So that may not sound like a huge number, but it can make a big difference to a small business um, importing items that they need um, to use in their manufacturing processes. So could you just comment a little bit on the significance of GSP for U.S. manufacturers, especially small businesses? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that we've seen sort of over and over and over again is that U.S. small businesses are the biggest beneficiaries of the GSP program. Um, we have something that's called the GSP supporter list. It's on our website. Companies who use the program can add their name to it for free. Uh, and basically we ask questions, who are you, where are you, what do you buy? 
how many employees do you have? Um, what countries do you source from under the program? How much does it save you? And um, the typical company that adds their name has 12 employees and saves about $100,000 a year in eliminated tariffs. Uh, and, and those numbers have been fairly consistent over the years. We've collected these, this type of data um, back to 2011 on and off. We always end up in a range of you know, 11 to 13 employees. Uh, sometimes that's based on 50 companies responding. Sometimes it's based on 700 companies responding. Um, and we're always in that range. And so we know sort of beyond a reasonable doubt that that's sort of that sweet spot, that big enough to have multiple employees and, and maybe a, a separate warehouse on the other side of the country um, and, and saving, you know, what is a lot of money to a, a company of that size, $100,000 a year, uh, but not necessarily the type of company that makes news when they hire or lay off workers or, you know, no one really tells news stories about fifty or $80,000. Um, you know, the, the other thing that we've found, and this sort of really affects, I think, the manufacturers particularly, is a lot of them are operating in niche markets. And so they sell very specific items and they import very specific items. Um, and maybe they only do it from one supplier or one country. And so for them, if all of their products get GSP and GSP goes away, they're in a very different position than, say, a large company with hundreds of suppliers uh, spread throughout the world who have a lot more flexibility in moving around. Um, and so, you know, those, those impacts are something that we've, we've really been able to see. Um, and, and I think that's reflected in a lot of the work that we've done. Um, you know, because again, a 10 person company that's going to face a hundred thousand dollars in costs uh, they react very differently to the prospect of lost GSP than, you know, a, a company with billions of dollars in revenue. Uh, even if that larger company is going to lose, you know, a million dollars, two million dollars uh, due to lost GSP. I'll also say just uh, just a quick sort of jumping back to that relatively small share of imports from GSP countries mm -hmm. um, can be a little deceptive, uh, and the reason for that is is a really large share of imports from the world are duty-free for all countries. Um, and so on, on GSP, it's, it's something like uh, almost half of all imports from GSP countries face zero tariffs, regardless of which country they come from. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got uh, GSP countries like um, the African countries that get separate benefits under the AGOA program, or you have Haiti that gets separate benefits under a Caribbean program. And so, you know, they're not claiming GSP because they're claiming something else. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time. And then, you know, when they're not claiming something else, it's because they don't need to claim anything. Okay. So AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. So that's, that's another Correct. question we could talk about is how GSP overall relates to some of these regionally based acts. Um, I also, though, want to follow up, though, I think you've done a great job sort of explaining what the stakes can be for small businesses, particularly those that operate in a niche market. And GSP, as you know, expires in December of this year, December 31st, 2020. Um, you know, there are small businesses in Nebraska that benefit from this program or import products under GSP. One of them, a company in Scotts Bluff called Couplematic Systems, was a signatory to a letter back in June that many companies signed on to urging Congress to act to renew this program. And again, you've laid out the stakes for some of these small businesses, too, if this program does not get renewed. Um, 
But so I want to fo- follow up on that, though. Other than sending a letter to Congress, what other opportunities are there um, for the American public or companies to weigh in on GSP, whether it's through a regular government review or otherwise? Is their input actively sought through normal review processes, or do they just need to act on their own through the coalition that you run or, or on their own to contact those who have a, a voice or a vote in renewing this? Yeah, there there really aren't other options, uh, unfortunately. Um, the administrative reviews, whether it's for countries or products, um, you know, the the product specific reviews generally are due to a petition or something hitting one of those competitive need limit thresholds, uh, and it's it's a very narrow review, um, and very few tend to be impacted. You know, it's a handful of companies. Um, on the broader questions about eligibility. Uh, you know, a, a challenge there for the companies that use the program in the U.S. is, is they don't have a formal role in that process. So let's say there's a, a complaint about intellectual property rights in a given country. Um, the review led by USTR is really focused solely on the question, are that country's policies compliant or not? It's not a review to determine, okay, on balance, uh, is the United States better off, you know, punishing that country by raising tariffs or not? And so the the program users have a very limited scope on that. They can weigh in, but if they say, I would be really hurt by removing these benefits, that doesn't really answer the question as to whether or not that country is compliant or not. And so you've, you've just got a, a very one-sided process there. Um, and I think, you know, Nebraska is an interesting case here. Uh, you know, the the figures, the latest we figures, figures we have that, that you cited of, of over $300,000 in tariffs saved this year, um, that corresponding figure for uh, tariffs paid because of some of these country decisions over the last year. So India lost its benefits, Turkey lost its benefits, Thailand lost some of its benefits. Um, Nebraska companies have paid about uh, $830,000 this year due to those decisions. Um, and so that mix of, of Nebraska companies, who cares about GSP renewal, why do they care, is very different today than it was even a year or two ago. And, and Nebraska has really sort of borne the brunt of those decisions just through those some of those company-specific uh, links to various countries. And so you know, Nebraska's lost over 70% of its GSP benefits compared to only about 30% nationally. Um, and so, you know, they're, I think they're the third or fourth sort of most impacted state by those decisions. Um, and, and that does get to that. What is the, what is the process for weighing in? And again, there really isn't one. No one asked Nebraska companies if they would be hurt by removing GSP benefits. The only questions that went out were, sort of a, is Turkey providing market access? Is India providing reasonable market access? Is Thailand meeting labor rights criteria? And these are all things that are out of control of the Nebraska companies who ultimately are paying the price today. Right. That's a really interesting perspective on this. What does and does not get considered in the review process? Countries losing GSP eligible status for for other reasons and not looking maybe at how exactly that impacts importers that may rely on imports um, from a country that lost its status um, to make what they make in a niche market. Um, so 
Senator Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has introduced legislation to extend GSP through April of 2022. It's a simple extension that doesn't alter the program, and he has said himself that such an extension would give Congress time to debate possible changes to the program. Do you see that bill moving yet this year? Um, How do you see extension and or renewal playing out? So I think a bill like that is the best chance of moving this year. And so, um, you know, there are always people that want to see changes to GSP. Um, Obviously, I think from uh, some of the things I've already said, we have our own concerns with the way the program is run and some of the rules associated with it. So I have a big list of changes that I would like to see uh, that I think could make the program better. Um, But it's, you know, going to expire in a little over two months and there's a lot going on in the u.s between now and then and, and we really don't have time for that thoughtful conversation that i think needs to be had because the devil is always in the details um and so you know i, I think whether it's the grassley bill or something like it we're probably looking at a simple extension uh or we're looking at another expiration and you know unfortunately that's something that has happened a lot in the past Uh, because you're just not going to have that ability to get everyone on board with proposed changes um, in the next six weeks or so. Uh, And, you know, I I think there's going to be there's there's at least the potential for really big changes in the political dynamic in Washington next year um, on a number of fronts. And so I I think that, you know, that short term nature of the the Grassley proposal recognizes that some of the people who want to make make changes probably think they're going to be in a better position to make changes next year um, so that this has a better chance of moving quickly than than say a reauthorization that's five years long and sort of kicks the can way down the road right and could you give us just a a quick preview of what you think might be say the top couple of issues that you think will be um, kind of at the top of this debate when we do get to such a time where Congress is actively considering legislation to renew the program and would be potentially making changes through that debate? Sure. The, I mean, the big ones on the eligibility criteria side would be um, things like adding in an environmental uh, provision, which you know is in a lot of U.S. trade agreements, but is not in GSP. Um, similarly, there is a provision that uh, countries must um, sort of have rule of law, uh, be making progress on rule of law issues like elections. Um, that is a criterion in the AGOA program, but not in GSP. So there's there's sort of pieces that are can be um, picked out of other trade programs um, that don't uh, that don't currently fit into the GSP program. So I think those are some of the issues that would be discussed. Um, from my perspective, you know, some of the product uh, rules around product loss or country graduation um, and product reinstatement. Like I said, there's a lot of products that if they were in the program today would not be at risk of losing them. Um, but because they've lost products over the last 20 or 30 years and products are rarely reinstated, you know, those are the types of things that are, are people leaving a lot of money on the table here uh, and sort of undermining the development goals without without really gaining anything. Um, so I, I think those are the big ones. Uh, and the other one that's actually out there is um, Senators uh, Casey and Cortez Masto from Pennsylvania and Nevada um, 
introduce legislation to add a uh, a criterion associated with women's economic development. So that's that's going to be a, a topic of conversation. Um, and then changing the products. So most sensitive, you know, products as defined in the 1970s are still excluded. There's a number of uh, companies that would like to add things like apparel and footwear that don't get GSP, but are really what these countries specialize in. Um, to the program, given the the sort of reductions in U.S. production of those goods since the program was first founded. So lots of issues at play. Okay. Yes, clearly there are. And that's an excellent preview for us. Thank you, Dan. So last question today, which is one that I ask every guest on the show, is what is something you have read recently, book, article, report, um, about trade or global commerce that's been particularly striking to you? Uh, so the the one that really jumps out at me was a paper by, um, and I, I wrote these down so I didn't mess this up, uh, by Kyle Hanley from University of Michigan, Faria Kamal from the Census Bureau, and Ryan Monarch from the Federal Reserve. And the, the paper's called Rising Import Tariffs, Falling Export Growth, When Modern Supply Chains Meet Old-Style Protectionism. Um, and so basically, they had access to confidential firm-level data and found that uh, firms that eventually faced import tariffs from the, the trade war in 2018, um, 2019, accounted for 84% of U.S. exports. Um, and that as a result, because it's the same companies paying import tariffs that are then turning around and exporting, the trade war was basically the equivalent of a 2 to 4% tariff on U.S. exports, even if they weren't the products on retaliation lists. Um, and so when I read that, it was, it was very much a light bulb turning on for me because wearing my non-GSP hat, I was at the time doing research on comparing U.S. export trends for products hit by retaliation and those that weren't. Um, the products hit by retaliation, things like soybeans, uh, they got a ton of press and they saw immediate declines. And it was, it was a very obvious impact. Um, but what I was seeing in the data was that products that didn't get hit by retaliation basically stopped growing and then started declining. Um, and because that was such a large universe of products, that uh, that weren't facing retaliation, those few percentage points declines had a much bigger impact on U.S. import trends than than the actual ones that everyone was reporting on. And I had no idea why that was. And so reading that paper on those those linkages about how an import tariff becomes an export tariff, um, it really just tied together things that I was seeing in the data. you know, and, and I'd spend a lot of time in the data and just, it didn't really, it, it really just brought it all home to me. And so I thought that was a very interesting um, paper. It came out, I think earlier this year or late last year. Uh, but, you know, it's that, that question of when you impose import tariffs, what are all of the impacts that you're not thinking about? I mean, it ties back to GSP, same thing, the manufacturers who lose GSP and you know, now have to start paying more if they're turning around and exporting to other countries, those U.S. exports are less competitive. That is very well stated, Dan. And actually, I have seen that paper. And we, in fact, had Dr. Kyle Hanley on a webinar that we hosted here at the Yeider Institute just a few weeks ago. Um, That does really tie a lot together. As you said, I'm glad you mentioned it. And we will put that in our show notes for sure. 
Um, Dan, we are going to have to have you back for sure to follow up on more of these topics um, at some point here on Trade Matters. But for today, I want to thank you very much for giving us a good education on GSP, how it works, and some of the issues at stake. So thank you. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiderinstitute at unl.edu or follow us on Twitter at yiderunl. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guests or hosts and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.